As you know, we live in an age today where the idea of tolerance is considered one of the greatest of all human virtues. And the correlating principle that goes hand in hand with tolerance is the idea that judging somebody else, judging their character, judging their lifestyle is simply not allowed. In fact, in some cases, you, it, it might even become a hate crime in the minds of those who you are judging. Now, the foundation of that principle is something that I've lamented about from this pulpit many times in the past, but I'll, I'll say it again. It's this idea, this very postmodern idea that truth is now completely relative and ultimately truth is unknowable. That's the claim that's made in the world today. In fact, there can be an infinite number of truths out there according to the world because truth is determined by each person, not by any divine standard. So your truth and my truth can both somehow be true all at the same time and nobody has the right to judge which truth is more true than the other truth. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but you have to understand that is the postmodern world that we live in today. In line with that, one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the entire Bible is Jesus' famous command in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says, do not judge. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. It is the favorite verse of every person out there who hates Christianity but still wants to quote the Bible at you and me. It's a weapon that they believe that they can pick up and they can brush off and, and, and they, can, they can use it to escape accountability, to escape any criticism of their lifestyle. And they, they figure if, if nobody can judge them, not even God apparently, then there are no limits to the self-indulgence that they can engage in. So if you question the wisdom or morality of another person's lifestyle, you're likely these days to be greeted by a snarky response that says, hey, your Bible says you shouldn't judge me. And they seem to think it's the mic drop of all mic drops. Sadly, many Christians who lack both common sense and an understanding of their Bibles are often unsure of how to respond to that. And they get shut down. They get bullied into thinking that they have no platform any longer to judge anything whatsoever. But here's the truth. And just a quick warning, here comes a Princess Bride reference. In the words of the great Inigo Montoya, I don't think that verse means what they think it means. <laughs> if Christians would simply read beyond the soundbite that everybody picks up and read the entire passage, which, by the way, comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, they are going to find that that sermon is filled with moral and relational judgments that Jesus says are necessary for a believer to make in order to navigate this fallen world and to know God. So, yes, Jesus commands you and I to make judgments. And that may cause you to say, but hold on a second. How in the same sermon can he say, do not judge and you should judge? Well, the key is how you judge, right? The key is how you judge. And that is the subject for what we're covering this morning in John chapter 7. The fact is, living, in a, completely, living a completely non-judgmental life is not only impossible but it's unwise and unsafe as well. We need to be judging things each and every day, but that raises the question then, how do we avoid falling into sin when we judge? Isn't that the key? We have to judge, but how do we avoid falling into sin when we do it? Well, Jesus in Matthew 7 explains that judging is a lot like measuring with a scale. We always ought to use a, a, a measure that is fair and impartial, not a scale that's been rigged in our favor, not a scale that 
causes us to rob or cheat somebody else, we're to judge all things with integrity according to what is true. That is why truth is so important to know, because we want to judge according to truth. And not to judge hypocritically, not to lay judgments on people in this one area while at the very same time we are doing the very same thing. And make no mistake, this is not easy for human beings to judge well, to judge without falling into sin. So there's a good reason we have this warning in Matthew 7 from Jesus. If you judge others, be careful because God will apply that same same standard of judgment to you. And so therefore, make sure when you judge, judge with a righteous judgment. Amen? Grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're looking at verses 14 to 24 this morning. Let me bring you up to speed on where we left off last Sunday, if you weren't with us. It is early October in Jerusalem, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, has now drawn pilgrims into the city from all parts of the ancient world. Up in Galilee, Jesus' brothers have just tried to persuade him to go up to the feast for all the wrong reasons, right? To promote himself to show himself to the world, to show people his miraculous powers. But of course, Jesus doesn't bite on that temptation. He's not working off any man's timeline. He's only working on his father's timeline. So he says to his brothers, hey, look, your timeline doesn't matter. Mine does. So you go on, go up to the feast, do your thing, go on without me. But then John says in verse 10 that Jesus did indeed get up and go to the feast, but not in the way his brothers wanted him to go and certainly not with the motivation that they wanted him to go with. He only goes in response in obedience to the Father's will. So he chooses to travel quietly, going up later than all the other pilgrims. And you have to understand, we're talking about a pilgrim feast. All of Palestine is moving to Jerusalem. So Jesus avoids those crowds. He goes quietly, not wishing at this point to draw any unwanted attention to himself. Remember, John says that he just stayed in Galilee for six months. For six months. Why? To avoid having to go to Judea, where he knew his life was at risk. But now he's doing exactly that. And it seems logical to me to assume that his showing up late at this feast was to prevent a premature triumphal entry. The type of outpouring of of, of support that might have led to his arrest happening before his time. So he intentionally is flying under the radar here. Now, in Jerusalem, many are watching for him, right? Many are looking for him, including the religious authorities and all their spies, because the feast was a perfect time to trap their enemies in the city, uh, city limits and then to arrest them and get them off the street. Meanwhile, John tells us that the crowds are all talking about Jesus from Nazareth. They're, ta- they're debating about him. Some are saying, well, he's a good man. And others are saying, no, he's a deceiver. And of course, as the reader of John's gospel, we know that he's neither one of those things, Right. He's not just a good man. He's so much more than that, and he's certainly not deceiving the people. What he truly is is going to become known as we continue on in John's gospel. So look at verse 14. Now you're up to speed. Here's what happens next. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now, the Feast of Booths is seven days long. That's the way it was back then. It's still that way in Israel today. So at some point, maybe three days, maybe four days in, Jesus surprises everybody by boldly appearing, not just anywhere in the city, but in the temple courts, the the sacred home turf of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, the very people who are trying to make him disappear. 
he boldly appears in their temple courts. And a crowd must have quickly gathered around him to listen. And you have to imagine that that crowd was filled with all types of people. You had local Judeans. You had pilgrims from out of the area. And of course, no doubt his enemies came to listen as well. Only now they, they can't lay hold of him because the crowds are all around him. Now John, this is so interesting, John doesn't tell us what Jesus taught that day. This is one of those questions, like write it down when you get to heaven. What did Jesus teach about that day? John only gives us the response of the crowd. Look at verse 15. The Jews then were astonished or amazed, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So we don't know what Jesus taught, but it was astonishing, right? And by that last phrase, they mean, how can this man teach like he does since he hasn't gone through our sort of seminary system. He's not, he's not gone through the customary track of being formally trained. And there was, in that day, for rabbis, an established track of education, like there is today for a pastor who goes to seminary. But Jesus hadn't studied in Judea, in any reputable part of Judea. He hadn't been down there spending time. He hadn't sat under the, the teaching of a distinguished rabbi. So the question was, where did this teaching come from? Now, I find this really interesting. As much as these people hated Jesus, his enemies in the crowd, if they could have found some false doctrine that he taught, don't you think they would have said so? If they had said, well, he, he blew that exegesis, that wasn't right, he doesn't really know, they would have pinned that charge on him, but they don't. They can't, because Jesus' teaching is pure. But since they apparently couldn't attack him on doctrine, somebody in the crowd says, well, let's talk about his credentials. And this is a time-honored trick in debating, right? You've seen people do this, the ad hominem, right? It's a time-honored tradition. If you can't defeat your opponent with actual ideas, what do you do? You attack him personally. You raise questions so that the audience maybe won't believe what he's saying. So you win the audience to your favor by saying, well, this guy's really not qualified to speak in this way. Here was the thing, though. Jesus' teaching had impressed the crowd. No question about it. We know that because it's implied in the question itself. How has this man become so learned? That word learned in the Greek is ido, and it can, mean, it can mean knowledgeable, it can mean perceptive, but it tells us that whatever Jesus taught in that day, the people in the crowd recognized, first of all, his extensive knowledge of the Scriptures and, and his wisdom and insight. And they were astonished. They were marvel. They marveled at his words, John says. Now, we have to make sure we understand this. This was not a spiritual amazement. This was not a spirit. They didn't fall to their knees and worship Jesus at the end of his teaching. They were amazed intellectually, and they were amazed academically. Keep this in mind. When a rabbi taught in the synagogue or in the temple courts like this, the standard procedure was this. As I teach, as I make every point, I make sure to cite a rabbinical tradition to support what I've just said. But Jesus never did that. You can go through all of, his, all of his teaching and sermons. You don't see him citing tradition. You don't see him citing other rabbis, right? And this made the religious establishment seethe over him because they perceived arrogance in that. But Jesus was teaching what the Father taught him. He doesn't need to cite rabbis. As for the crowds, time and time again in the New Testament, we see people recognizing Jesus as the most unique teacher they've ever heard from. Perhaps because he never does cite other rabbis, right? Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, 
Not in the traditions of the past, not in other rabbinical statements, but in himself. That is absolutely unique in this day. And it says, and not as their scribes. He was completely different. Now, the scribes were the seminary professors of this day. But Jesus taught uniquely different from them. So here in John 7, you now have an attack on his credentials, probably launched by the scribes, and they want to discredit him in front of the crowd. They want to say, look, guys, don't be fooled by this man. He's from Galilee, right? I'm going to go back to that attack. He's from Galilee. He doesn't have the approved training necessary to speak in this way. Now, the sad part about this scene is the spiritual blindness of these religious authorities. These are the so-called shepherds of Israel, and they are spiritually blind. When they focus on his credentials, they value all the wrong things. They value the outer shell, not the substance of what he actually taught. I mean, who cares how he was trained or where he was trained or if he wasn't trained at all? The question is, is he speaking truth? Is what he just said true? That doesn't seem to be in their wheelhouse, the truth of it. Do his words reflect sound exegesis of the scriptures? See, if a man like this was, was a true shepherd of Israel, that would be the most important thing to him, right? But it's not to these guys. Why? Because in the background of all this is power, control, control over the masses. It's, it's personal glory. There's all kinds of really negative things in this attack on Jesus' credentials. Now, do people still do this today? Right? <laughs> Silly question, right? The human condition hasn't changed. Do we judge things in people based on externals? Of course we do. And this happens inside the church and it happens outside the church. We tend to value all the wrong things when we select people to follow. When we choose people to listen to, we go, through, we go after all the wrong things. Out there in the world, people will, teach, will latch on to teachers and leaders and so-called influencers based on what? Style. Not substance, style. Not realizing that everything that they're seeing is an airbrushed image. They will still chase after those who have style. It's all about appearances. And in the church... Man, I hate to say it, but Christians do this all the time. We're just as guilty. What do churchgoers often look for when they place themselves under the authority of a teaching pastor or an elder team? What do they look for? Style? All too often. All too often. Good-looking guy? Wears all the right clothes? Looks pretty hip in the torn jeans? or <laughs> Right? I mean, I literally, we said, I got to get three or four pairs of torn jeans, apparently. No, I'm not going to do that. But I mean, there's that, there's that idea that, hey, this guy is relatable. He's so hip. Look, at, look how he dresses. Are they looking at truth? No. Is he good looking? Does he wear the right clothes? Is he entertaining? Does he hold my interest? I hear this all the time. Oh, he really holds my interest. Okay. Does he tell good stories? Is he funny? So many people go to hear preachers because of the shell what's on the outside. Just like these scribes, they're looking on the outside. How about these criteria? Did he go to the right seminary? Does he have the approved family background? Does he only cite the people that I like and respect? Or does he go outside that, the tribe and maybe cite somebody else? Does he mingle in all the right circles? Friends, are we judging righteously or are we judging superficially? in the church today? Where does the truth fit in this? And here's the thing, I'm a huge proponent of vocational ministers going to seminary to get trained. The vast majority of men who go into the ministry need to go get trained. 
I learned that really quick. My first semester, in fact, my first week, you can ask Tanny, I came back home. I thought I knew so much. I went to seminary. The first week I came back and I said, I can't do this. I don't know what they're talking about. I literally could not track with the professors. I'm like, I know nothing. So the, the average, now there are exceptions, but the average guy needs to go get trained. But let's be careful that we're not making the same mistake that we're reading about here in John 7, saying that has to be the approved track that this is the only way it can happen, judging by appearances. There's a famous story about a guy named John Bunyan. Anybody know John Bunyan? Famous Puritan, right? He's the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Do you know John Bunyan was not the most impressive looking guy? <laughs> and he had no theological training. Maybe you didn't know that. But everybody who heard John Bunyan preach knew that he was a precise and gifted teacher, that he had deep insights into the scriptures. But by trade, by trade, you know what John Bunyan did? He was called a tinker. I know, right? It's a guy, it's like a handyman today. He would go travel from house to house repairing tin objects like pots and pans and things of that nature. And there's this great story about one day uh, Bunyan's teaching came to the attention of the king of England of all people. And the king of England reached out to one of the great scholars of that day, John Owen, another great Puritan who had gone to Oxford University, highly educated. Well, Bunyan and Owen were friends. And the king of England said to him, how can you go and listen to a tinker like that? And here's what Owen said. He said, may it please your majesty, if I possess that tinker's ability for preaching, I would relinquish all of my learning. Judging by appearances. The king of England was judging by all the wrong criteria, wasn't he? Not by the substance. It is the truth that matters, friends. So we need to make sure that we're judging righteously. Now, look at how Jesus responds to the grumbling about his credentials. Look at verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, we see Jesus doing this all the time, right? He doesn't entertain the fleshly requests of his audience, right? He doesn't get, he doesn't get taken off into a rabbit trail by, by nonsensical questions. Like, they want to take, take it this way. Jesus goes straight into the matter. He's not going to get sucked by the way, this is a really good lesson for all of us. Not to get sucked into rabbit trails, right? Not to be taken off in some fleshly direction, but go to the heart of the matter. Jesus goes, hey, let me tell you about the source of my teaching. You want to talk about my credentials? Let me tell you where my teaching comes from. He does what every true preacher is supposed to do. Take the audience's admiration, right, of his words, the admiration that he's receiving, and redirect it towards God who is the source behind all truth and is the actual power behind all transformational preaching. Did you know that the, the words of the preacher, my words this morning have no power apart from the Holy Spirit working in your heart? It's God who is at the, the source of all transformational preaching. Jesus himself, who is God in the flesh, redirects the audience's admiration to his Father. By the way, this is an important principle not just for preaching, but for evangelism as well. When you're sharing your faith, it's one thing to, to listen to a skeptic's questions or to address his objections. That's all good and well. But ultimately, if you want to people get saved, you're at some point going to have to direct them away from you because you have no power to save. Direct them away from you and toward God's word so that they see and hear his voice, not yours. His voice, not yours. And that they understand that when you speak to them, you speak in His name and in His power, not in your own, because we have no authority. 
So the power to transform through preaching and the power to save by way of evangelism is not our work. So we commit to following Jesus' example here by always acknowledging, listen, I want to share truth with you, but this is not my teaching. This comes from, from God alone. Amen? Now, let's keep going in our text. Verses 17 and 18 give us two really important principles that we have to take note of here. First, how does a person know if they're hearing truth? How does a person know if they're hearing truth? Well, verse 17, in, in that verse, Jesus gives us a prerequisite for discovering whether or not a teaching is from God or not, whether it's true or not. Look at verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, underline that phrase, willing to do his will. That's the prerequisite. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak from myself or whether I speak on my own authority. Okay? So why did the Jews consistently fail to spiritually understand what Jesus is saying? To spiritually receive his teaching? The problem is not in their hearing, their physical hearing. The problem is not with a lack of evidence. The problem is their will. We need to know this in evangelism, right? The problem is the human will, isn't it? It has to be overcome. The will is the problem. If they were truly willing to submit to God and obey him to do his will, then the Jews would know that Jesus was speaking truth that comes from Yahweh. If they were willing to submit to God and obey him and follow, they would know. So here's the cool thing. There's a moral dimension for knowing what is true. It's not just academic. It's not just intellectual. It's not just the mind, but it's the heart, right? There's a moral dimension to it. Unless a man or woman comes to God with a submissive heart, that is prepared to follow and obey, he or she will not spiritually comprehend what is true and correct. Right? Soren Kierkegaard once talked about this. He said, it is difficult for us to believe for this reason because it's difficult for us to obey. It's difficult to believe because it's difficult to obey because we don't want to obey. We want to do what we want to do. I think he's dead on there. So this is so important to understand. Human beings are incapable of standing outside the truth and assessing what God says about it. Standing outside, disconnected from it. Like, I will stand in judgment of what God says. Human beings are incapable of that. The truth is only found from the inside, by faith, right? Through a commitment to submit our will to God's will. And that serves to reinforce what we just talked about throughout chapter 6, that unless God draws a person to himself and changes the will then we can't come to Christ. He's got to do that work so that we can step inside and see the truth. That's why we have to be born again first. Our eyes have to be opened by God before we can actually see and grasp the truth. So, doesn't that explain the mystery, from, at least from our perspective, of why people so quickly and easily dismiss the gospel? Right? Because they're not willing that's the, that's the ingredients. They've not been drawn by God. Their wills haven't been overcome. They're simply not willing, so they're not going to understand. It's because they come, they come with no intention of bowing their knee or submitting to the king. Instead, their idols and their selfish desires cloud their judgment, right? They come, they come with selfish motives. And so all these things that are happening in their heart, their desires, their wants, all those things, clouds their judgment. And in effect, they come holding their own opinions and thoughts above what God says is true. 
And then they judge God's words based on how they feel about it. Can you see why they don't come to salvation? They're actually judging God's word based on their own feelings. Their will's not overcome yet. So bottom line, if a person comes to the gospel as a scoffer, he or she's going to hear and go away a scoffer. But the promise is if he, if he or she comes with a willing heart to obey God's will, then he or she will know that Jesus was sent by God and that he does speak the truth. This is why Augustine said this, and maybe you've heard this quote before and never, never really understood it. Augustine says this, do not seek to understand in order to believe, seek to believe that you may understand. That's really an important principle and it comes right out of this text. Let me say it again. Do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe so that you might understand. Really important that we get that right. All right, let's look at verse 18 now. Jesus is now about to describe the distinguishing mark of a true preacher. This is personal for me, right? Verse 18. He who speaks from himself or from his own authority seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. Underline that. He is true. And there is no unrighteousness or falsehood in him. Think about this. If anybody in the history of preaching had the right to glory, to bring glory to himself in his preaching, it's Jesus. Because he is God in the flesh. But do you notice he never does? It's fascinating. It's amazing. He never boasts in himself. He is always pointing his audience back to the Father. I speak only what the Father tells me to say. I do only the things according to the Father's will. The Son lives and loves to, glory, to bring glory to the Father. You see it all throughout the Gospels. And based on that, this verse tells us how you can know, to even today, if a teacher or preacher is true. It's whether he seeks the glory of God or the glory of himself. Whether he points the people to God alone or he draws, tries to draw people to himself. And the church is full of guys like that today. Yeah, they will give lip service to pointing you to God, but what's the true motivation of their heart? Over time, you probably find out that they really like drawing an audience. That's really what they're about. This is hard for all of us, by the way. This is hard for me. It's hard for every elder on our team. Why? Because we're all driven by admiration. I mean, as much as you try to resist it, we all love the pat on the back and the words of affirmation. We are all, to some extent, people pleasers. So this is very, very hard. And anybody, anybody, don't, don't let people lie to you. Any person that ever stands up in the church and teaches is in the grip of a great temptation. That's why we need your prayers as elders here at Oak Hill. You are in the grip of a great temptation. And I've learned this over the years. You cannot take this lightly because the enemy is always prowling around, looking to take down a leader in the church. Why? So he can ultimately discredit the church. He can discredit the whole gospel by bringing down leaders. And I've seen it happen. I've seen gifted men stumble and come crashing down because all of the applause got to their head. It happens all the time. They experienced explosive church growth. They had so many social media likes. They became a celebrity pastor in some regard. And slowly, like the frog in the kettle, a man's teaching becomes more about his status, his success, and his experiences than the actual exposition of God's word. 
So if a man glories in his academic degrees, you should run from that. If he glories in his success, if he glories in his personal cleverness, if he glories in his ability to entertain, if he glories in impressing others with his knowledge more than he glories in simply explaining the text, if he seems more committed to exalting himself rather than pointing you to God, get up and run. Because that man is in trouble. It's only a matter of time. On the positive side, here's what to look for. Every preacher who is true will step into the pulpit with a profound understanding of the majesty of God and the incredibly heavy burden that he carries as one who stands behind something like this and speaks on behalf of God. That is a daunting thing. And it will drive him. He'll become painfully aware of his unworthiness. Ask any guy here who's preached painfully aware of how unworthy and inadequate we are to stand here and say, thus says the Lord. But it will cause that person to work longer and harder and more carefully in handling God's word. That's what you want to look for. That's what you want to see in here from a pastor or from an elder team in any church. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Make sure you understand the difference between pointing people to God and seeking to build a following for yourself. All right, let's look, turn our attention here to verses 19 to 23. Now this is, sometimes when people read this text, they get a little confused by verses 19 to 23. At first it looks like a weird rabbit trail, but I'm going to explain it to you. So let's take a look at it. So again, Jesus has just explained how to discern what a true teacher looks like. And now he says, verse 19, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out or keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Man, I just picture like this silence come across the crowd. What did you just say? <laughs> right? So Jesus is, remember, remember who he's preaching to here, right? These are people that claim to love God's law. In fact, the religious authorities there would say, we're the guardians of God's law. We're the keepers of it. But Jesus says, you don't really keep it, do you? Silence. For a man who is already surrounded by enemies who want to kill him, this is a really dangerous thing that he just did. To make this claim, it is an explosive charge that he is leveling here. But he's come with evidence, right? He gives him one simple but very serious example. You are trying to kill me. And it's true. And the religious authorities in the crowd that day knew it was true. And we're going to find out later in verse 25 that this plot to kill him was openly talked about in Jerusalem. If you lived around Jerusalem, you, know that you knew that this was the case. So they can't deny it. They've been trying to kill Jesus for a year. They've been plotting for a year now to kill him. That's why he's, he spent six months up in Galilee. You shall not murder. I mean, that's in the Big Ten. That's number six, right, in the Big Ten. And here they are plotting to kill him. So what Jesus just did is he, he publicly ripped the mask off of these religious men in the crowd. And they're not happy. Well, verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Now, that response at first sounds a little weird, but it's really not surprising because, again, many in the crowd were not from Judea. They were not from Jerusalem. They weren't privy to all the political and religious you know, plotting that was going on in the city, so they're confused. Why is he saying this? We're here to listen to you. We love your teaching. Why are you now saying people are trying to kill you? So how does he respond? Once again, rather than responding to their outburst, Jesus goes straight to what he knows is at the root of the authority's hatred for him. 
Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one deed, one miracle, and you all marvel. I did one thing, and you're all astonished. Now, what's the reference? It's back to what we studied in chapter 5. Remember, Jesus came into the city, and he healed this crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. Guy had been lame for 38 years. This was a, a shocking miracle. I mentioned this last week. Jesus knew that that one miracle had gotten under the skin of the religious establishment. Why? Number one, he did it in Jerusalem, under their nose. And number two, he intentionally did it on a Sabbath. So he knew this was a problem, right? He did it intentionally. The sad thing about this story, again, is the so-called shepherds of Israel, they showed zero joy that a fellow Israelite had been healed. They're, they're, they're no better than the priest in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan who walks right by the person, right? They walked right by this man who had been crippled for 38 years, ignored him, and went after Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Wow. They strain a gnat, but they swallow a camel, don't they? That's what Jesus says of them. Zero joy in that. They're more upset that this man had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath. It blows your mind, doesn't it? Now, catch Jesus' argument here because it may seem a little hard to figure out, but I'll try to explain it. Verse 22. For this reason, Jesus says, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers or from the patriarchs. And that's true, right? Circumcision predates the Mosaic law. And on the Sabbath, he says, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? I made his entire body well? So the law, of course, required that every male child, Jewish male child, be circumcised on what day? The eighth day. There was no other day to do it. Not the seventh day, not the ninth day. One way to do it on the eighth day. But what if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath? And now we have to do a work on the Sabbath to circumcise that child. Well, you'd have to do it, right? There's no way around this. So you break one law, the law of the Sabbath, in order to not break another one, the law of circumcision. So you have to choose which law to fulfill and which one to break. And by the way, Jesus, by saying this, isn't implying that the Jews were sinning by doing that. The opposite is true. He's saying, no, that's precisely what you should do. You should circumcise on the, on the Sabbath. Now, in that day, rabbis and scholars had argued, everybody knew this, that circumcision was known as a perfecting act. You cut away the flesh in circumcision to make the child right before God. But if that's true, Jesus asked, how can you be angry or upset that I've perfected a man in a much greater way than circumcision? I made his entire body right. Do you see what he's saying here? I made his entire body well. So how can you be mad at me? You do this yourself in circumcision on the Sabbath. You perfect this little baby in just this very small way. I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. Do you not see your blindness? He's put them in in an inescapable quandary. They either have to admit that they've been sinning by circumcising on the Sabbath, which they would never admit to, Or they have to admit that what Jesus did on the Sabbath was more significant than circumcision. So are you now angry enough to kill me over that? And Jesus' question is, who's the real lawbreaker here? 
right? I mean, this is a punch in the gut. This is why people are blown away at his teaching, the authority that he has, the wisdom and insight that he has. He's just trapped the entire religious establishment in their own hypocrisy. Okay, let's wrap up with the all-important final verse in the passage. This is the great rebuke now that Jesus delivers. Verse 24. He says, do not judge. Now, a better rendering of that because the verb there is in the present tense is stop judging. How? Stop judging according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Going back to where we started this morning, here it is. Far from being a command not to judge anyone, John 7, 24 is a command to judge as long as we judge in a righteous way. Jesus says to those in the crowd, listen, your discernment and your ability to judge is way off kilter. You've been misled and mistaught. You have no ability to discern anymore. You're only looking at the outside of things. You're only looking at how things appear according to tradition. Go deeper. Start here by being willing to do God's will. If you want to know truth, start with being willing to do God's will, and then you're going to see more clearly what is true and what is false. Listen only to teachers who glorify God rather than drawing attention to themselves, which you've been doing. You're chasing after men who glory in themselves, who want all the applause in the marketplace and wear their phylacteries and all the gown and all. That's what you're going after. So you're not seeing the truth. Stop listening to false teachers and stop judging based on their traditions. Discern what the true purpose of the Sabbath is because they've misled you. Love your neighbor and praise God for the miraculous works that he's been doing through me. This is the great rebuke that Jesus, in that very simple statement, Jesus lays on the crowd. Can you imagine how upset the religious establishment is at this teaching in Jerusalem, in the temple? So what about us today? Let's talk about some application for us because there's so many ways we can mess this up in so many ways we can improve it and do this well. In what areas do we need to stop judging by appearances and start judging righteously? I'm gonna give, give you four big ones here. Number one, first of all, let's talk about our own hearts. Calvin talked about the, the importance of what he called the double knowledge. Know God and know yourself. Know your own heart. Judge your own heart righteously. Be honest with yourself and with God about the condition of your heart. How well do you know your heart? That's a serious question. How well do you know your own heart? Do you know all the things that are going on in the deep parts of, of your, your inner being? Do you regularly assess its condition? And if you do, do you judge your own heart righteously, honestly? with the raw truth of really what's going on inside? Or do you prefer to brush it aside? To look the other way and to maybe just prop up an image instead to impress other people, put a mask on. Because I don't want to deal with that stuff. I don't want to judge it. Friends, there's not a person in this room that doesn't need to do heart work, including me. All of us need to be asking hard questions about what's in the deep. Because if we're not honest with ourselves and with God, how can we expect to grow and mature in the faith? Right? We all, we all talk, I want to grow. I want to be mature. I want to be transformed. Well, 
a big part of that is knowing God and knowing yourself, knowing what's going on in the heart, and then laying your, having the courage to lay yourself open before the Lord and say, I want to be honest. I want to judge righteously what's happening in my own heart. And the beautiful truth of this is the Spirit is always there to help you in this. In fact, for the believer, there's unlimited grace in that journey. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great message? As ugly as you might be inside right now, as a believer, there is unlimited grace for the process of working through those things, of, of bringing them to the surface so the Spirit can do a work. There's no condemnation. There's only love and grace and power when we commit to honestly lay our hearts before the Lord. But you've got to judge your heart righteously. Starts there. Here's the second one. What about others in the local church, in our body? How do we judge others in our church family? Would you say that you're judgy when it comes to your brothers and sisters at Oak Hill? Are you judgy? By the way, that might be a good thing. Or it could be a bad thing, depending on how you do it. That's where we started, right? After all, we're members of one another, Scripture says, and we're called, this is part of our membership covenant, to exhibit an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another. So it's not, it's not a bad thing to be judgy as long as you judge righteously. How do you live that out? Would Jesus say that your judgment of others in this body is righteous or not? That's a really good question. Sometimes we judge others based on hearsay or gossip. Not verified truth. That's not judging righteously. Sometimes based on appearances, we make really negative assumptions about other people. And then whether it's in our heart or out loud, we attack their character or we impugn their motives. That's not judging righteously. Far too often we talk about others rather than talking to them. That's not judging righteously. The call to judge one another in local church is good and healthy if it's done right. Right? We all need to do this. We're all, as members of this church, we're all here to say, look, here's my profession of faith. Hold me accountable to it. I'm giving you permission to judge, to judge me. If I fall short of my profession of faith, in love, I want you to come to me. And I want you to receive it from me as well. But let's make sure that we're dealing with each other in good faith, thinking the best of one another, and always judging based on truth, with the motivation always being love then we can judge righteously in the body. And that's what we're called to do. Amen? Got really quiet there. <laughs> it's a hard one, right? Because I, most churches, are, they're just ripped up with disunity and division, right? Because there's a lot of unrighteous judging going on. So that's number two. Number three is this, influencers. Are we judging the influential people in our lives truthfully or not? Now, we've already talked at length about preachers and teachers, but I'll say it again. Be wise and discerning when you place yourself under the authority of a teacher or an elder team. Be very careful. Don't naively follow based on appearance or style or any of those other things we talked about. But there's some other areas. What about authors? People who write books, right? People who write blogs that you're being influenced by. Are you applying righteous judgment to the things that you read? Important question. What about celebrities and social media stars? All those glossy images that the media puts before your eyes. Be really careful in this area. It's not all evil. I'm not going to make a blanket statement to say it's all evil, but there's a whole closet full of temptations 
that come with constantly being connected to social media. All kinds of things. Don't be naive to the dangers. Judge all things truthfully. That's the message here. Judge righteously. Judge honestly and truthfully. Know your own heart with that. Listen, if social media is a temptation, do something about it. Right? Be sensitive to that line that you might cross when you know it becomes unhealthy and it's time to either turn it off or take a break. Again, that's part of knowing your own heart so that you could apply it in this area as well. Who is influencing you? Are you judging them righteously? Good news, the Holy Spirit's always present to assist you in this in making these judgments, but we have to abide with Him. And we have to listen for His voice and we have to respond. So that's a big one, influencers. Last one, and then I'm going to give you a commercial for this one. The things of the world. Are you judging the things of this world righteously? Now, there's a whole long list of things out there in the world that we could talk about, but here's the core question. Are you able to look out at the world and discern what is really true about it? Can you discern what is really true about the condition of the world around us? Are you able to see its fallen nature? Is that what you see when you first go outside or you click on the news or whatever? The first thing that should pop in your mind is, this place has fallen. It's a mess. Are you able to see that? Do you recognize the corrupt spiritual powers and authorities that are behind the world system that we have to live in today? Do you see the evil? Do you know that there's spiritual power there, real spiritual power? All under the sovereignty of God, but it's there and it's running the world system. Do you see the creation groaning under the weight of sin each and every day? This is what it means to to discern rightly, to judge righteously what the world is all about. Not just blunder into it and think it's your friend. (laughs) It's not. Newsflash. When it comes to the people out there, unbelievers, how do you judge them? This is so important, right? Do you judge unbelievers righteously? Meaning, do you understand their human condition apart from Christ? Maybe you can recall at a time when you were an unbeliever, but we should be able to discern rightly what their human condition is. Are you, in light of that, are you shocked or surprised when they do certain things or say certain things? You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Do you expect them to share your values without knowing or submitting to biblical truth? You're only fooling yourself. They're not going to. Now, they are the harvest field that God has given us. So we, so we have to balance this to recognize the truth about them, but also to realize they're the harvest field. So we ought to start by judging their condition truthfully, but not stop there. Not stop there. Because we got to go and we got to share, right? Because we can testify this about ourselves. God can save anybody that God wants to save. So we got to get out there and we need to pray and we need to go to them. So make sure that you're righteously judging the unbelievers in your life. Don't expect them to affirm your values as a Christian. They can't. But know that they're your harvest field. And that if God's going to save them, God's going to save them. So share the gospel with your words. Not just your life, but with your words as well. True? Amen? Last thing, what about government? (laughs) I mean, that's a small thing today, right? Are you able to look at government and judge it righteously, truthfully? Be a Democrat or Republican? Can you be honest? Can you be honest? Can you admit what is true or do you play games like the rest of the world? 
Do you play games? Do you justify sin? Do you defend the indefensible for the sake of political wins? Christians ought not be those people, and we have failed at this. Have we not? Is this not our reputation now for defending the indefensible, for seeking political victory over truth? We have only ourselves to blame. Have you placed a false hope in the next government that comes into power? Is that really what you're pining away for, as if that's going to be the the answer? Another Republican administration? Can you see my face? That's for the people who will listen online. I'm making a face. Don't put your hope in that. So here's the commercial. This is the whole purpose of the underground, is to help you in this last one, to be able to, to see what the world is truly about, to help you work through how do, I, how do I translate what's happening out there? To help you form your biblical worldview, to strengthen it, to encourage you in these dark days. The underground starts next week, Wednesday. We're relaunching. We want to make it a, a, just a, a part of the rhythm of everybody's life in this church family because, again, Sunday is for the, ex, the exposition of God's word. Wednesday is for applying it in terms of growing in our biblical worldview. And, and our elder team thinks both of those things are critically important for the days that we live in. So I'll leave it there for today. There's so much more that we could say about judging righteously rather than judging superficially. But guys, it's something that we must strive to do every day in every area of our lives. May we all be strengthened by God's spirit as we seek to please him in this area. Amen? I want to send you guys into just a few minutes of quiet time because I hope there was something that the spirit worked through me in some way in my fallible words, but the Spirit worked to maybe convict you of something in the heart. Maybe there's something you need to repent of. Maybe there's something you need to ask God about right now to change the way you think, the way you judge. Whatever it is, I want to give you a few moments of quiet time, and then Grant's going to come up and lead us in song again. Let's pray together.